Zoe Caldwell, Gerald Friedman, and Stuart Vaughn sat down for an interview with moderator Ada Brown Mather in May of 1988. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce the panel? We have Ms. O. Caldwell, Mr. Gerald Friedman, and Mr. Stuart Vaughan. Ms. Caldwell, uh, I understand you were born and trained in Australia. You, uh, she began her professional career at the age of nine. She's worked as an actress in most of the important English-speaking theatres throughout the world. Uh, she's worked with many of the giants of our theatres, and so she's learned much from them. And during her 34 years of acting, she's received recognition, including two Tony Awards, and now you're also a director. 43 years Oh, <laughs> <laughs> for a moment there, you all thought I was lying about my age. No, I'm 54. No. It's updated. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see it's an old. <laughs> Mr. Friedman has directed all types of theatre, the classics, musicals, operas, new plays, television. He was the leading director of the New York Shakespeare Festival for many years, co-artistic director of the acting company, Artistic Director of the American Shakespeare Festival and is currently Artistic Director of the Great Lakes Theatre Festival in Cleveland. New York theatre goers will remember him for the original productions of such things as Hair, The Robber Bridegroom, The Gay Life and others. His New York uh, City Opera debut was in 1973 and there's a long list of opera credits. And how Mr. Vaughan was artistic director of the Phoenix Theatre from uh, 58 to 61, where he directed a fascinating and comprehensive list of the classics. He's directed many of uh, Shakespeare's plays for the New York Shakespeare Festival. He's directed Arnold off Broadway. And Mr. Vaughan has traveled extensively in Europe, observing European theatre. He's worked uh, with over 20 British repertory theatres and has great experience in educational theatre, teaching, lecturing, Besides all this, he's an actor with many Broadway credits. So, you see, we have a, a panel who can give much to our subject, which is directing Shakespeare. And James tells me that this is one of the few subjects that we've brought forth for, the, for a second era, because people get so worked up about this subject. Well, so we didn't tell us that. <laughs> <laughs> So perhaps we can start from this point. Why is it that we get so excited about how we should direct Shakespeare in our time? Why has James asked us to discuss this subject again? And um, we go on having these discussions. From all your experience, can you tell me why is this such a passionate subject? We don't get worked up about Jacobean plays in this way, or medieval mystery plays, so why? We don't do them. We don't do them. <laughs> well, you start off. Well, I don't know. I think we just because we do a lot of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't you think? And we don't know how to do it here. 
Oh, yes. No, no, that's oh, not well, true. Oh, already we're physical. Well, perhaps this is the this is the beginning of the thing that everybody's going to take well, sides. I, would, I wouldn't have thought that it was a passionate subject until Ellen <laughs> just said that. Oh, I think people talk about this <clears> because I think we do it very well. Well, just as anywhere. I mean, in England they do it well sometimes and not so well other times. Right. And, um, I, I, it's one thing, I, I don't know whether this is part of the passionate discussion, but I, I don't think that the English have cornered the market on Shakespeare directing, and I usually get very offended at when people say so. And, and it's my feeling that the, intermittently, anyway, watching Shakespeare production in London or England, in the last 40 years that they, they took a, some things from us mm-hmm. and uh, that there is a, there's been a back and forth mm-hmm. transference. I know that when I came into the theater in the late 40s, there was like only one model and it was kind of the English mm-hmm. uh, old Vic, Tyrone Guthrie mm-hmm. kind of model and the theater guild mm-hmm. use of that you know mm-hmm. kind of tradition. And I think it's changed very drastically both there and here, particularly here. We're, we're dealing with, with a great playwright who's universal in his appeal on so many levels simultaneously to all kinds of people. And such a playwright is subject to an enormous variety of interpretation from the various human points of view that directors are going to approach from. But perhaps the argument is not any more about Shakespeare than about the limits of the directorial uh, province in interpreting. I don't know whether I don't know whether a group of symphonic directors would have the same kind of argument about how to how to interpret Beethoven, at least at the same scope of scale, that uh, that we might have about how how to how to handle Shakespeare. What is the director's province? How broadly can he go without destructuring? Uh, destroying the very work that he's presumably trying to be the medium for mm-hmm. to the audience. So, seems to me to be the, the yes. crux. Well, now then, you've set us off on the, uh, on the discussion. So let's start off by saying, how would you deal with, how do you deal with the world of the play and bringing that to life, taking note of time and place that Shakespeare indicates in his Okay, so let's take that as a starting point for this. Uh, the world of the play uh, related to time and place. Well, he always says it. He says, what country, friends, is this? Is it Illyria? Ah, Illyria. So you don't have to have a whole set about yes, Illyria. So you don't have to have a, um, the moon shining through and all that. He says it. He does it all. Actually, he's the easiest guy. I think, <laughs> to do, because he tells you everything and there is no subtext. So all you have is text, and that, I think, is where we sometimes, actors and directors, fall down because we're so wanting to help him, which is pure hubris on our part. He doesn't need our help. He just needs for the audience to understand every single moment of the play. And they can only do that if the actor and the director understands every single moment of the play and puts it together quite quickly so that the intelligence isn't lost. People ziz off in Shakespeare because they think, oh, 
and they go to sleep. And they zizz off at the greatest Shakespeare. They zizz off in England, in Stratford, in both Stratfords. They zizz off all over the place. Unless their intelligence is absolutely engaged, which Shakespeare understood totally. But we mess it around. We help it. <coughs> Purple velvet. Zizz off. The purple velvet robe. We understand purple, we understand velvet, we understand robe. So we don't need to help him. We do need to just let him be as clean as possible and use as clean a possible voice and as clean a possible direction. It's a awesome stage. That's right. Really? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the, the, set, the set must be flexible so that it responds instantly to his demands of time and place. Uh, I feel it's a dirty pool to break the play up with blackouts. Indeed, the 15-second Plinus pause uh, uh, that get you, you know, that stop you in the, in the German theater. That, that uh, another ideal is that the play must be spoken continuously, if possible, from scene to scene as well as, as within, within scenes. Uh, and, and that the continuity in, that's provided by the conditions of the Elizabethan stage would be what I would go for in answer to your question to help me with time and place in the modern theater. Let, let this stage be the guide, which doesn't mean slavish imitation, but it also doesn't mean using hydraulics and all kinds of fancy stuff because the words are there. That's right. I, I agree with both what so and, and uh, Stuart said, but it does pose problems to accomplish what they're saying. Yes, uh, uh, <clears throat> I couldn't agree more that I, anyway what I work for is always clarity first that's mm-hmm. utmost but for instance I just did a production of Love's Labor's Lost I just finished it last week and it's a play I've done before <clears throat> and there is um, I, I'll, in part Shakespeare in that play is making fun of academics he's making fun of language I mean that's one layer of it and there are a lot of comic routines or what one supposes are comic routines making that clear to an audience is sometimes not in the words. Because one, uh, for instance, I mean, when he's making fun of uh, the use of words, the words themselves don't help. So often you have to say, what is the behavior that will make this language clear? If you're doing one of the great tragedies, it, it may be a little simpler because I agree with Zoe, it's right there in the lines. He tells you everything, what to do, what it should look like, etc. But particularly in, in the comedies and... and uh, some scenes, even within the comedies, are much more difficult than others. It's what is the behavior. Now, we don't know necessarily what the behavior was. I mean, that is something that isn't in the text. It is in the text. It's buried there somewhere if you can extract it. What were they doing that helped make this language clear? So that is a search in itself, and I don't think that's easy. And when you say about the stage, I mean, right now I'm having a problem. We're working, both working in the park. And... Um, you don't have his stage. That's I right. mean, it's outdoors, but there's no roof, there are no pillars, there's a huge expanse of uh, theater. It's, it's much less confined. So it's how do you solve those problems, even though the principle, I mean, it goes the same as that. You want that fluidity, you don't want anything to stop it. Uh, you want a minimum of scene change. I mean, those are, we share those, apparently, we share those same ideals, although everybody may not. Uh, but those are the, the problems. How do you make even if you uh, want to subscribe to these principles, how do you accomplish it? Yes. Right. Moving parts 
of the enemy in scenery. To me, I, I, hate, I hate them because they slow the technical rehearsals down so much and you, you have to wait for things to get fixed and moved. Uh, if you can possibly avoid moving parts, I do. I'm afraid I'm going to have uh, a circular tower in King John. I'm also going to have a, a throne that moves back and forth. At least, you see, you can't. That's right. Because you haven't got any flies. Right. You haven't got any, but at but least, no blackouts. You won't have any blackouts. I'm not going to have any blackouts. And you can always get, I think you can always get speaking actors downstage of a scene change. And and often the scene change in the dark if you have to have the damn thing so that the lines keep going and there's somebody down there and there are flags and banners and somebody talking and then the scene pulls back in and by some kind of magic we, our tower is turned our throne is retracted but you're, you're we're, maybe we're jumping around I don't know but I mean what it suggests is Shakespeare in our terms was a master of the dissolve yes, yes. That's right. uh, I mean, Plus everything that film or not everything but many things that have become language of the film Shakespeare Anticipated in his theater or Elizabethan theater, at any rate, and so you, you take advantage of crossfade, dissolve. But sometimes it dissolves too. Yeah, But still, we still have to face this thing about the world of the play because if you say this is a Lyria lady, yeah, I mean, is a Lyria? Where is Lyria? Is it going to be in New Jersey? And does it make it any closer if it's in New Jersey and all that sort of thing? There's still got to be a place where all of this is going to be spoken. I mean, uh, uh, an idea where Illyria is. Can I just throw out something? And then, yes. Um, because I, I try to um, keep the play as close to what I think Shakespeare intended. Now, that, that both smacks of hubris and arrogance, right? <clears throat> to imagine no, what allowed. he intended. Is that allowed? Okay. <laughs> but, um, so I have never said it on a you know, on the planet Mars, or I've never put it in Southwest uh, Texas or something like that. But at times I have, Ultra, I may have gone away from Elizabethan. Right now I'm going away, I'm doing much ado in the park. And the play, be- and since Joe is doing, Joe Papp is doing all of the Shakespeare things, the play before was Italian Renaissance. Well, I wanted to do much ado in Italian Renaissance, but it didn't seem like good sense to follow one production with another, and the- so I thought of another period. Then I wanted to do it in um, a, a, a period that would be compatible with what I thought the nature of Shakespeare's intent was. Um, so then I thought, well, we'll do it in the middle 1600s, the Musketeers. But Stuart had done uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, and, the, and that was the a play that opened the park last year. So those are realistic things that Hemi women. I could ignore them, but it doesn't make a lot of sense because finally we are in a sense of entertainment. Business. So I had a. I was looking for a period that would not violate Shakespeare's intent in my to my way of thinking, and yet would not duplicate these other things. What do you do? And in Much Ado, my feeling was that uh, you wanted to look for a period that was quickly recognizable as militaristic. I mean that that there were armies and that people were used to soldiers, uh, and, and and a quick fix on that because that plays an important background to the play is that they're manly soldiers and then um, then quite extraordinarily I took a cue from the play it says Sicily, Messina I thought well what a good idea why not Sicily, Messina <laughs> because I was playing all around and so I began to evolve some in, in 1800s which is kind of Napoleonic 
thing, and it's Cicely Messina, but it was arrived at all the time, ever-present, flashing in my eyes, be true to Shakespeare. I mean, I wasn't looking for a gimmick. I didn't start with, well, what would be a wonder, what would make the women look great, you know, big skirts or what have you. It's what will complement the text, I what did. will illuminate the text. Sorry. Uh, I, I did my production thesis at Indiana University in 1946 on Macbeth, and uh, uh, where well, were you when we needed you? <laughs> <laughs> I was fighting with Julius Caesar when you needed you. I sent off to, you know, in the academic institution, you send off for all sorts of other people's theses and read what they all did, you know, the interlibrary loan and all that stuff. So I, as a diligent 21-year-old or whatever I was, sent off to somebody else's production thesis. I got that mistake from some nameless Michigan university. Uh, she had decided, the, the woman had decided to do a modern production of Macbeth, modern. And she didn't want to say England and Scotland, so she decided to say Northia and Southia. <laughs> and then they had these modern costumes, see, so she came to the soliloquy, is this a... Well, of course, if you've changed everything, you have to say, is this a revolver that I see before me hand to my hand? But that kind of dealt with me uh, for the rest of my life as to transposing. But you went periods. to a rum place. Uh, yeah. Where did you get this terrible woman? <laughs> From Michigan. I was in Indiana. Ah. But yes, I never been to You didn't know what but, they were doing in Michigan. <laughs> but I, I, I made a rule for myself, and it's valid for me, but I don't know if it would be for anybody else. I, I also was a history student and, and before I settled in the theater, and I get annoyed when I see a world depicted in which social forces, as indicated by costumes and scenery, are different from the forces that form Shakespeare's play. I get very annoyed with Measure for Measure in 1848 Vienna, because they wouldn't have done all that in 1848 Vienna. It would have been a different damn play. So my rule is, and I don't suggest it for anybody else, I'm not going to set the play any farther back than Shakespeare's day, or maybe 40 or 50 years in advance of him. I wouldn't, I, I've never done a Shakespeare play that was dated past the English Civil War. I've, I've used 1640s, I don't think the world had changed much yet by 1642. Uh, I'll date them earlier, and I've, you know, all the way back to those damn furs in King Lear, and yeah, King Lear. But I just, I don't like it when it's later than the period of the writing. Well, this is the reason you, if somebody else had been here, Mr. Vaughan, and maybe somebody, it will, it's going to happen in the audience, this is what makes people explode. You see, they may think that's a, a terrible thing to say. Can I interject just one yes. other thing? If, as I have, and I'm sure you have, and, well, I, I don't know about, so I don't know how many, I'm sure she's I done, you have, but, but you will. No, if you do some of the plays yes. four or five times, yes. Um, Sometimes, just as an artist, I need yes. some other kind uh -huh. of stimulus. Yes. I cannot repeat, repeat what I did before. Course. So, although again, did I you get it perfect the first time? Yeah. Uh, quite often. <laughs> no, 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 no. What is interesting? That Love Savers a lot. This is my fourth production of all plays. I can't oh. believe it. And I think I did some very good productions of it. I mean, from the beginning, in a sense, my idea never changed. But mm -hmm. the layers that mm -hmm. I discovered this time were so astonishing. I couldn't. It, it was humbling. 
Absolutely, because I thought, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I mean, it, it just his genius is, you know, is very inspiring and very wonderful. Can just a footnote? Um, I am in Cleveland now six months here doing uh, Great Lakes because I wanted to live with Shakespeare, because I hadn't been doing enough of it. To me, it is a, a terrible to live without, I mean, without actually producing it, hearing the language at least once a year, dealing with that. It is so rich and so, yeah, uh, feeding, so nutritious that I had to do that. So, I mean, the very reason I'm here is, I mean, the subject is the, the You see, I feel if you've done the proper work with the company, and when I start with the company, when I start, not when I just have two quick weeks at the end, when I start, I sit at a table for one week with the text and all the actors and we simply read the text in as clean a voice as they can possibly muster. Anytime I hear any we stop and they go back and we literally just read it, read it and read it obeying the punctuation. Everyone says, oh what punctuation? Well the Arden isn't a bad idea but you'll find that if you do obey, it's like a score. It's like a musical score. And so often, I think, like the lady in Michigan, she says, I would love to do it in such and such a thing, or we'll do it as a deck of cards, just because a deck of cards seems swell. That's just plain bad theatre in anybody's language. But uh, if you really do understand, and everybody in the company, I mean people who only say two lines, they must understand the entire play for it to be helpful for them later on. It also helps you understand the entire play. Then once that's happened, you can put it on its feet and you can set it as a deck of cards if you wish because the audience's intelligence will be engaged all the time. And I once asked, no, I didn't ask Maureen Merlin, but Bob Brustein asked Maureen Stapleton, what did she feel was the purpose of theatre? That's a question only Bob Brustein could ask. (laughs) And she said to keep the audience awake and in their seats. (laughs) And awake is good. So I don't care where you set it, how you set it. I never set it in odds and woe on occasion, I do. But but the most important thing is the text, is the engagement of the the actor's intelligence, of the audience's intelligence. Once you've done that, you really can yeah. throw it in the air. I have never understood every single word of a text more than I understood the Peter Brooks Midsummer Night's Dream. I remember sitting there and I'd been in the play and I'd been all the first fairy, Titania, Helena. No, I'd never been Helena. I'd been the little one, Hermia. And I'm not tall enough for Helena. And um, I remember going and you know the sort of thing you do and then the curtain goes up and your neck goes up high like kids at a circus and then they be- your neck begins to sort of go back down and- until you can't hardly keep your eyes open and your head's wobbling about. <laughs> we came to the interval, and I realized that around my neck was a lot of air because I hadn't gone back into that position. I, the curtain had gone up, and I literally, all my intelligence had been engaged all the time. And I was following, they were taking me, taking me, taking me, taking me. And then the curtain came down, and I relaxed. And then the curtain went up for the second part, and the air went around my neck. That's theater. That's thrilling, and that's Shakespeare. It doesn't matter. He had them on circuses. Didn't matter. It was a brilliant reading oh. of the text. A brilliant understanding oh. of the play. Oh. 
And but that, every actor understood it. Every yeah. single thing he said. But Brecht, didn't Brecht say theater is, is to surprise, to shock, and to make you see things strangely? To make you see the familiar strangely? Well, you can do that in whatever period you decide to set the thing, because if, if, if you've got to do Hamlet so that the audience says, my God, is that Hamlet? Wow, I, I understand it. Well. Yes, that's the best that's thing. What you have and to they do. say, I understood it. And, and so really, it, it doesn't, it finally doesn't matter. I mean, it's my historical crotchet. No, no, it's good, it's good. You must, we must have a few purists. <laughs> well, I think you've really put together all this thing that we started off with, which, uh, how do you bring the world of the play, or what do you do about the world of the play? And so now you've said the world of the play doesn't really matter. It can, you can, it can be a deck of cards, so long as you actually keep the audience awake by communicating this but may I, and I don't think it's I wouldn't think it's quite so simple I, I would agree with Zoe's first yes. statement is that it's all in the text it's all in the text yes. and, and I think you uh, stray from it with, with great peril yes and if you do then you have to say what what will come closest to achieving the intent yes. of the text because yes. the other Aspect is that he's a poet. He's a great yes. poet, and really, he is never being literal. Yes. I mean, he may have written Caesar about a Roman times, yes. but as That's we know, their his idea, his information about yes. Roman times was quite different yes. than ours. And sometimes that could be obscuring, or sometimes it could be very clarifying. But so, I mean, you have to take that into yes. consideration too. But I, we've put all that together. Uh, yes. Brought that around. Now, then, can we talk a little? about whether you think modern actors, and I suppose we ought to say, uh, perhaps since we're in America, more particularly American, modern American actors, are equipped to face this. Uh, are they uh, trained well enough for this purpose? Uh, what's your feeling about that? <laughs> I, think I think American actors at this moment are more equipped to play Shakespeare mm -hmm than other actors in the world because, number one, their sounds are much nearer the sounds that Shakespeare wrote for. They are a raw group and providing they use their own voices and their own bodies. If they do imitations of anything remembered... You see, so many English actors have remembrances of and remembrances of performances, whereas for the most part, if you get a really terrific group of bright Dangerous, dangerous is always good with actors. Dangerous group of actors. And you absolutely force them to discipline themselves to understand and speak the text. It's amazing. David Rashi, uh, who played um, Petruchio in, in um, The Taming of the Shoe, he was just dying to play it, but he'd never done any Shakespeare. And I made him go through, like, almost like da da dee da 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 I made him go through with the commas and the full stops and the semicolons and, and the colons and all that stuff. And he was so thrilled that Shakespeare wasn't tough, that he was able to play Shakespeare. And he was so marvelous as Shakespeare because he's a dangerous actor. He's a sure an American actor. And he was more exciting, more thrilling because of his discovery of how accessible to him Shakespeare is. Also, he was prepared to take risks. I find that a, a lot of American actors who are trained very well do, do, won't be prepared sometimes to take risks. That's the director's job, <coughs> to say, you can take a risk. Look, come, come with me. Come with me, and I'll show you how easy it is to take this risk. 
you can't say do it, but you can lead them. We have a young boy in uh, the Macbeth Company who all he has to say is, what is your name? That's not tough. But he couldn't do it. He said, no, I can't do it. My voice will give up. <clears throat> I'm having trouble with my <laughs> What is thy name? That's all. <laughs> well, he does it now. And he'll be better off the next time he plays. <laughs> for having said, what is that? Instead of, what is thy <clears throat> name? You know, if, if we reduce it to ourselves reduce it to something that's easy for us to do, then it will always be unaccessible. But if we can rise to it <coughs> as actors and directors... Oh, well, I spoke a lot. Well, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about this? Uh, I very much concur as, uh, with Zoe that I think American actors are wonderfully suited to play Shakespeare and since I don't know I won't speak for you but since we've been with the American, uh, New York Shakespeare Festival for some 30 years or something like that I've always thought so mm-hmm. uh, and I think one of the major tenets that was laid down just philosophically and not much discussed was that you use your own voice you don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed to have quotes in American accent uh, whatever that is um, so I've always believed in that and always approached it that way. And again, since a lot of my experience was with the first with the New York Shakespeare Festival, there, when we had to make a choice between someone, or I will say when I had to make a choice between someone who spoke very well but uh, effaced his personality with the speech, I would certainly go with the personality. I was more interested in an actor who... Uh, could be dangerous and interesting than one who spoke perfectly and was rather bland. And we often were criticized for it in the 60s and beginning. I mean, critically, particularly, you know, they, they, they never speak that way. I would say almost all of our leading actors now, the most respected members of the profession, all were part of that original or those early companies. Uh, so it was a matter of critics getting used to that year rather than any, I think, mistake that we were making. However, I, again, just dealing, having dealt with Love's Labor's Lost with it, which is where language is the play. <clears throat> There's not a hell of a lot of a plot or something. Uh, and having worked with young actors, training them at Juilliard, for instance, uh, for a number of years, there, and, and auditioning hundreds, hundreds of young actors uh, for these companies, they need more speech training. And I don't mean any kind of phony speech, but just diction to carry their energy to the end of their line. Just technical things. It has nothing to do with their being Americans, but we have let a lot of that training go. And you can't do, uh, you can't drop off the end of the line. I mean, everything that So is saying, uh, what is thy name, takes energy and it takes, literally, it takes guts, and you have to know you've got to go beyond, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for anyone to be timid about it is embarrassing. Uh, but that's how far some of the training has been remiss. In. And I, you know, uh, I, I just think we have to get back to that. I would never trade it for a sense of the inner work. But what is the problem about combining it? None. You'll find they keep their energy through <coughs> if they don't put too many full stops, which aren't there. Oh, I agree. No, no, I agree. Well, but, you know, that's another thing. Can I just, uh, yeah. You know, when you want to break down the text, you have to. And so you break it down 
with the commas and the etc. Then many, uh, well, many actors, I won't say American actors, many actors then have a problem putting it back together again. But it's again the same in music. You have to, yeah, you break up your phrases, then you have to do the long phrase, and then you do still a longer phrase, and finally you do the whole piece. But that's technical. You've got to learn how to do that. You've got to train your equipment to do that. When you understand these five notes, that doesn't mean that you separate those five notes from the whole phrase. I mean, it's all part of a, a longer line. That longer line is something I find I'm always having to work Yes, and at. when you're directing, do you have to work on this? Do you all work the time. on this area? All the yes. time. Because first, to understand the text, and I also sit around the table mm-hmm. for uh, at least a week, to just do text work, you're breaking it down into small increments so that it is clearer, so that the, the sense will be there. And then to get them back to the long line uh, should be just come natural. It should be just a matter of training, but it quite often isn't. I think as, as Ms. Colville said, the, the text is all in the sense that there isn't any subtext. That doesn't mean that the actors don't have feelings and thoughts while they're speaking. But I think it does mean that, that such colors are under the text, not in between it. And that almost everything the actor thinks is spoken about in the text, isn't it? Yeah. So that we, we, I find our actors have a lot of bad habits from television, uh, where this headshot, and then you say that, and then there's another headshot, and he thinks up what he's going to say. Look, in real life, we're, we're ready to That's speak right. before the other guy's finished. And your cue word really happens four or five words up back in the other guy's speech. That's the thing that makes you know what you're going to say. It's why you should never forget your lines. You just listen. Something's going to come along that makes you respond very, very simply. I think another problem we have, too, is we look at a large text and we think, these are large figures who have large emotions. Well, I like to go back and say, what is the function of the words in a play? What do words do for us? I mean, if we're feeling just emotions, we go, ah, you know, or what, you know. But, if, if, but the act of putting things into words is the act of distancing oneself from emotion sufficiently to handle it and understand it, and to try to do something to your partner with the words that you're using. The intention is also the source of word color in the, you know, the night is dark, the sky is blue, you know, that has nothing to do with anything. But the night is dark, the sky is blue, thank heaven, I mean, God, thank God in the sky. Yeah, that's word color. Uh, but word color of an organic kind that our method actors can understand and keep the text going at the same time. An anecdote, uh, Yuri Zabotsky, who was then the head of the City Theater of Moscow came to a production of Henry Paul Part One of mine at the, at the Phoenix. And it was the first Shakespeare in English he'd ever seen. His, he was, in a professional manner, complimentary afterwards, but his real point, he said, I'm astounded that I can't tell the difference between the prose and the verse. And well, it never occurred to me, but of course the Russian tradition is based on the French tradition, and there is a French tradition of declamatory speech. Uh, did Shakespeare intend that we, should, that we should hear when it goes from verse to prose? On the contrary, I think not uh, in the English theater. I think there is, no, there is no properly observed tradition. There is no tradition that is correct of a singing declamation in the English language. 
I think there is in the French language, I think there is in German, and in, evidently in Russian. But in English, I think our writers have always intended to be natural and to sound natural. Verse being highly selective speech, but surely not a natural speech. So the call for, the, for our own voices, sir, I subside. Um, again, I don't know what I, I, I again digress, but I, uh, something that uh, you know, was brought up before about clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find maybe this is natural, maybe not, but that critically, if you set uh, you know something in um, the, the latest fashion, mm-hmm. for instance, everybody will write about it, glowingly or unglowingly, but they will write about it. If you do it all in black and white, they will write about it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you do it on roller skates, I'm going to say, and, uh, they will write about it. And um, you'll give it lots of space. Uh, my own feeling, I can't believe that there is yet another way of doing Hamlet, for instance. I never have had enough arrogance to think that I would come up with really a fresh idea. To me, the freshest idea is to do it clearly. And, and so I go back to that. I think that is the most important thing. What does it mean? If you can hand that over to the audience, to me that's revolutionary, uh, not to put it in uh, you know, fancy dress or... I tell you another thing, too. All the touching that goes on in natural... <laughs> in today's acting, everybody touches this. I know. How are No, touch, 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 touch. You don't need the touching in Shakespeare. <laughs> Better no touching. There was a lot of touching, wasn't there, Philip? <laughs> Three weeks before we opened. Well, I cut out some of the touching. I wasn't popular, but I did cut out some of the touching. But uh, I remember doing a production of Richard II at Stratford on, on, on Ontario. And uh, oh, I knew all the actors. And they were doing their own touchings. And I said, okay, all touching is out. We'd already been one week at the table. They didn't like me. They always loved me, but now they hate me. And I said, okay, no touching. Nobody touches. And not only that, nobody looks at anybody else. Then I made them watch the news on the Canadian Today show, the equivalent of. And I said, you watch important people when they have those things in the Rose Garden with our president. Or... Who shall be nameless, but but, uh, <laughs> but they're very strange because they only look at one another when there is a reason to look at one another. Watch it on the news; it's very, very interesting. It gives great, great power to whatever they say when they choose to look, when they choose not to look. And people in Richard II had to earn the right to look and earn the right to touch. So when they did look and when they did touch, yeah. Very exciting. Also, it was quite medieval, which was quite good. Too. <laughs> but it was uh, this touching thing is is we've got to watch that with uh, not only American actors. I mean, all actors. It seems to me nowadays have had such a lovely time touching one another. <laughs> uh, you know, you've talked about uh, how you want actors, of course, which we understand this totally. Uh, need to uh, use their own voice, their own bodies. You know, we had all, we just talked about that. Uh, in Shakespeare plays, there is a certain social order. People have their place in Shakespeare plays. There are some people that we know are leaders of society and have subjectively, I agree, but the audience has to believe that these people are leaders of society. 
we often have a tendency nowadays to, uh, as it were, respect the man in the street so very much. Do you have problems in that area when everybody is so busy being themselves that we, I mean, after all, Shakespeare is not living in a democratic society and the plays are not set against a democratic society. They're not being themselves. They're using their own selves, their own bodies, their own sound, but they're not being whoever they are when they get up in the morning. They're being the character that they (laughs) are. And the the idea of speaking to a servant and not saying, fetch me a cup of coffee. You say, fetch me a cup of coffee. And the servant goes off because he knows jolly well that he's the servant who gets the coffee. Well, do you find that, I mean, you you know the point that I'm making. I Uh, do. Yes. They're not, of course, they're not contradictory. I mean, no, and, they're not contradictory, yes. And you, again, that goes back to period and place. You, you, you have to create a period and place where that is, is part, part of, of the it, yes. society. Because, yes. it, yeah, it's his so that is, yes. layering. Yes. But, again, you, I think, have to find it within your, your actors. I love yes. so saying you have to earn... Yes. The yes. right to touch or earn yes. the right to look at. Yes. The same way you have to find out what there is in you that yes. is commanding yes. and why somebody else is the yes. servant. I mean, yes. So that it's organic and not a phony imposed, yes. you know, dopey thing. Uh, again, I, I concur with you say everybody at the table because the person playing the servant has to understand his place in, in, in order to yes. do it correctly. Yes. We don't you know, have the. Uh, he's not a star, and when he comes on, he's the servant. Yes. We don't have the the absent difference difference between mm-hmm. classes that Shakespeare's period did, or most languages have in America, do we? I mean, I mean, there there's no social no. way to speak here that differentiates the aristocratic from the, the poor, or at least none that we can. It's easy for not us to use. Well, I I don't like to see people speaking Cockney. Uh, oh, no. in Shakespeare plays, playing the servants, no. because it doesn't usually go with the language the upper class people are doing. So, I don't know. We, sometimes we used to do... Oh, I've, I've, heard, the, I've heard Brooklyn accents used. Uh, it isn't very pleasing, because that brings you back to a, a particular region in time, too, doesn't it? Uh, there's a kind of rural, uh, almost Somerset thing that... Uh, that what can you but you know what you're doing and I, which I think is how I deal with problem is body language your behavior yeah. what was different yeah. I mean you naturally were assuming a different and yeah. I think we read that into yeah. characterization yeah. Uh, yeah. a lot that people of certain kind of reading schooling some tend to carry themselves in a different way different than way. someone who's a worker I, I came in to help Othello I'm always coming in to help <laughs> I came in to help Othello and when I met Othello I don't mean the, the James Earl Jones or the character, but when I met the play, everybody was uh, deferring to Christopher Plummer, who was playing Iago. And everybody just stood a little bit aside. Well, it makes rubbish of the play. I mean, why does Iago, if everybody is deferring to him, why does he have to do all those evil things? Stupid. He just doesn't make sense of the play. Even James Earl Jones was deferring. <laughs> So, Kelsey, Kelsey Grammer, I, I assumed, uh, was kind of a high-board boy, actually, by his manners offstage, so I asked him, and indeed he was, and I said, therefore, you must treat uh, Christopher as a low-born fella who's just uh, one of your servants. And Kelsey couldn't believe that he was going to do that to Christopher Plummer. I said, no, it isn't Christopher Plummer, it's Iago. 
And suddenly the whole stage began to sort of snap their fingers at Chris and say, you know, do this and go and get the Lady Desdemona and blah, 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 blah. And suddenly the play made sense. That's when class and... Um, and difference in social structure, and also you can't do all those radio accents since Beyond the Fringe. <laughs> you ever heard Beyond the Fringe, that last set of Shakespeare thing at Beyond the Fringe? Oh, God, get it. It's so in the thing still. You yeah. should get it. I mean, at any time you're directing a Shakespeare, and any of your actors sound remotely like anybody in Beyond the Fringe, play it for them. I mean, they do away with a whole... whole Time. Did you know who was that? Was it Richard? Was um, George the Third? Um, I defer to you because you're historian. Uh, German. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, the sounds that Shakespeare wrote for were sister, brother, <laughs> bath, path, dance, France, gold, home. They're not particular sounds. That's how everybody spoke in England. George the Third came on the throne, and he couldn't say. Gold, cold, he said, gold, gold, sister, brother, dance, plants, pop, pop. But because he was the king, it became the king's English. So suddenly everybody's trying to do Shakespeare with funny old George III accents. So when you hear an American actor trying to say dance or prance, but I don't forget that. Oh, bath. Oh, oh, bet sure your bottom does. dollar it does. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> People try to make it not, surely. No, 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 they do. Well, most of the people my age who, who had no place else to go to be properly trained, except England, tried to learn to do all that. That's right. Sure, we came back with our, our expensive educational baggage, you know, and a lot of this is imitation Englishmen. Yes, but uh, uh, the director probably knocks that out of them. If they're anything like you, they're going to be doing that. But not for decades. This is, it's fairly recent. It really is. And it's still, uh, critically, it's still behind. I mean, the, and the audience is still behind. They don't want to accept that. They, uh, they, it's not, that's not it. They'd rather pay the fucking fare to go to Stratford-on-Avon and hear the, you know, the English sometimes do it badly. You've been autobiographical so, uh, slightly about the, like, the Scottish play. Uh, we, invited, we invited some people no to do Caesar, uh, which I've just directed. Uh, a psychiatrist, uh, school former school friend of my wife's, and, uh, and her lawyer players. I said, well, these are talented, skilled American actors who are very brave uh, to expose themselves here and try to learn and to try to grow. Yes, but he said, I won the second prize for declamation in New Jersey <laughs> when I was in high school, and I learned. This went on all evening, and I, I had just about had it for three or four weeks, and the reviews had just come out, came out. So I was, I, was, I was being polite, sometimes rigidly polite, but I simply wasn't letting anything go by me. I batted everything back to him. It was a dreadful evening. We took them home for drinks. <laughs> <laughs> but the, exactly what you said, and I hear people in the audience, you know, behind, some people say, oh, that's not the way you speak Shakespeare, as, as Al Pacino. But did they understand it, the audience? Oh, they understood it perfectly. If they understand it, that's fine. Joe reported, Joe Papp reported a conversation that a British photographer had with him, came in and said, oh, I've enjoyed your, your Shakespeare, your Caesar so much. He said, he must have modernized a great deal of the text. 
<laughs> Joe said, we didn't touch the text. We didn't modernize the text at all. The guy said, well, I could understand it so clearly. I knew what was going That's on. Brilliant. Isn't that what you want? That's the compliment. Yeah. Well, you know, we all forget this word spoken. We've come almost to the end, and I haven't used the word concept. And that's the sort of thing. That and we're grateful that you do. And if you do, we shall slap you. <laughs> but I must say, you see, now it would if we'd only had a fourth person here who would have attacked you. Yes, but I, you're can, all I can name some names. Yes, <laughs> and you can name some, and so could I. But you see, you're all agreeing that there are people... But there are people who would say, yes, but there's no point in doing this play unless I am moved to do it now, and, and I see I have this vision that it must be done in this way, otherwise there is no point in doing this play. You know, I, I think that's very valid. But then yes. it should be advertised as my view of oh, Shakespeare's yes. Yes. Julius Caesar yes. or Macbeth or whatever the hell it is. Not Shakespeare's Macbeth. But you know, if I may say, there are more people trying to do concepts than there are people daring to do the things that you've been talking about this afternoon. And what gets... And maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody's going to attack you in the oh, audience. But, but what, yes. gets called a con- <laughs> what gets called a concept is always something as broad as flights of red steps yes. or all black and white. Or, uh, you know, I mean, it seems to me most of us, when we go to work on a play, have some notion about the inner workings of the play. And that itself seems to me is very strongly a concept, out of which you decide to choose the scenery in this fashion, the clothes that way, and and those actors. I mean, we don't... I don't know when the word came into fashion. But it, it always mystified me because I thought, well, a director always has a point of view. Yes, of course. I mean, how can yeah. you start a bread yeah. without a point of view? But it became known as a concept, and a concept began to be known, I think, as window dressing. Yes. But then uh, the people who like concepts... Would say that there's, you know, the 400 years after Shakespeare has written these plays, there's no point in doing these plays unless we acknowledge, wait a minute, unless we acknowledge that we are alive today and therefore they have to uh, reveal in some sort of way our world through me as the director and I have this concept. The, the question I was going to say beyond that, but of course I know the answer before I say give the question, is does this reduce the power of the communication in some way when the director's concept is the thing that we are forced to stomach as the play? I mean, of course, sure. already said that. But, uh, sure. And you shoot that director. <laughs> But uh... I guess if, if I had my brothers, yes. and I don't, I mean, I'm having a very good time right now, but I, I do, we're not doing it this way. I would love to take a space. I mean, I'm going to talk about the concept. Yes. I would love to take a space with a thrust stage and audience of three equally sized sections on the three sides of that stage. I would like to provide an inner below, an inner above, the posts, the balconies, the, the proscenium, you know, those, those the side doors. I would like the house to be steeply pitched. I would like to buy a Shakespeare kit. You know, I would like to get costumes in about a 200-year range. I'd like to have some nice chests. And I'd like to have a big bell. And I, I, I swear. I like and, and some halberds and things, you see. And do it 
do do all the plays yes. within that narrow. Yes. Within, I mean, I would like to take out most of what's now called directing. Yes, quite a bit. And and deal with the acting and the text, Absolutely. and just keep revealing the plays over and over and over in rotating yes. repertory, night after night, and those houses would be so full. Yes, yes. Although, Mr. Friedman, you said uh, earlier on that you know you um, artistically feel that it's necessary if you're going to do the play three, four, five times that you've got to have some other... Well, for me, yes. it is. I mean, I have to... You not have any little concept around... Uh... Well, well course, I did some... I mean, I don't want to lose my friends. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I just said... Uh, I had done Love, Slavers, Lost yes. in... Uh, just a kind of a Elizabethan, I mean, a little post-Elizabethan, just so the men's trousers looked a little more acceptable. But basically, that was the behavior and the style. And it was very satisfying. I was doing it now 15 years later, something like that. And I just didn't want to lay that production on myself. It's not on the actors. Every company is different. So you, I never tell the actors, do this, do this, do this. It comes out of that company's psychology, their mix, whatever it is. Although you're, you know, the ideas are pretty much the same. So I said, well, what, where can I put it that, what period can I put, where the language, these hotshot kids who are uh, banging language around and they're kind of arrogant and they're uh, privileged and they're very educated and they seem not to have a care in the world and, uh, uh, Period. Uh, I'll just uh, stop there. That seemed to be the main you know, thrust of it. And and there were e- economics. The theater I was in couldn't afford, uh, even if I wanted to, uh, costumes of an Elizabethan age. What happened? So I set it in the early 1930s, before the Second World War. And I think it was perfectly valid. Yes. Uh, because those qualities that I mentioned afterwards, uh, somebody told me about Brideshead Revisited. I looked at the whole series, and that was it. It was the same world, really. Of uh, There's a cloud somewhere out there that's going to happen that they're completely oblivious to, and they're just having a lot of fun with words showing off their language, rich, rich, rich beyond belief, etc. And it worked very, very well. Uh, audiences are responding very positively, very favorably. I know from their reaction that I've communicated the text that the costumes, whatever it was, a period did not interfere with that. I didn't uh, bring in strange anachronism. I don't drive a car on stage, and um, I don't try to get laughs out of that. I, that's another thing I, I hate is using anachronisms to get laughs when it is in the text. You just have to understand what the behavior is, and it's all there. They're ageless. That's another thing. They're ageless comic routines. I mean, they were being done in the Greeks and Shakespeare did them and we're still doing them. You just have to kind of figure out, you know, what is it? Uh, so I have done, you know, that I, I, without, I think, destroying it. I can't uh, argue with what uh, Stuart would like to do, but finally, artistically, it wouldn't satisfy me. You just to have to do what you, yeah, I mean, there are... But I don't look, as I said, I don't look or an outside thing to lay on something. I first, I think, I understood this play and then said, how can I make it fresh for myself? So I can go into the rehearsal period all with more than just the actor's challenge, are which there, is a challenge. Are there, are there several plays, Jerry, that you've done lots more than once? I, I've got As a, you like it. Yeah, um, I've done five. Love's Labor's Lost. Never done 
I don't know, all things. I don't know. I've got five Caesars, five yeah, Macbeths. I they can't have been all the same. No, well, no, they weren't different actors for one yeah. thing. Well, of course. You know, as you say. You that's... didn't have Dan Jackson. <laughs> you didn't <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I was interested to hear you say uh, that you went to the Great Lakes because you wanted to work with Shakespeare a lot. And this leads me to say, why do we go on doing Shakespeare? What is the future of Shakespeare? And I remember once uh, turning on, by mistake, in L.A., a program which was uh, a Money Matters program. And there was somebody there who was, who was a professor of moral philosophy or something or other. And she was saying that she saw the decay of standards of, uh, standards of honesty, in fact, in the money world, directly due to the fact that our relationship to liter literature in general had so declined. And so that the standards which passed through literature from generation to generation and are revealed, the ethical standards which are revealed in, say, Shakespeare, as she said, we no longer have these causing an influence in society. And I was just interested, so that would lead me to the question of, uh, do you think that society in some way yearns for this thing, just as you have yearned for it, uh, Mr. Friedman? In fact, it is really revealing, because in all of Shakespeare's plays, well, it's really they, right of course, In Cleveland, they do not yearn for it. <laughs> I want to give it to them, and I hate to say this no, because yes. I don't feel it. I would willingly rub their nose in it I know, for their own good. It's terrible yes. to say that. Yes. But, the, I know, but what I really do know. though is try to make it accessible and intelligent yes. without compromising the plays so yes. that those people who go get it and will bring it up. I know, yes, but you see, it's the fact that maybe these people, because they haven't been exposed to this, don't indeed know that they want they it. Know, of course they don't. They're to, scared of it. Yes, and when they go to they, the they're the, glad to I, have I'm it. And I'm embarrassed to say that many of them didn't know, had never heard of the play. Yes. They didn't know Shakespeare wrote it. I mean, they know he wrote Romeo and Juliet. Yes. They know he wrote Macbeth, but that's the good audience, because they don't know oh, what happens. I know. And, and so it was fantastic. But see, they come thinking, and they loved it. They had never seen it. They'd never been exposed. It was like a new play. And they dug it. They're so surprised, but there's not a lot of carryover. Yeah. I'm hoping there is. I'm hoping it'll, you know, grow, but it grows uh, by small increments. You know, I remember... And I bet Aristotle said the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you did. It's always... I remember reading in The Guardian in England last year, maybe the year before, that Michael, uh, uh, Michael Billington, the Guardian uh, theater critic, said that he could see, because of the way the world was going, because of our relationship with, uh, visual, with the visual things like television, that he, he felt that, uh, the, that in the theatre, verbal communication would be uh, out in years to come. That's hard lines on Shakespeare. I just wondered what you thought about that. Do you have such a black look of the theatre as that? That was his feeling. I, I, think, I think there's something we, we crave about coming together in a room to hear and to think about what we hear that is a basic human need and that uh, I feel myself, I don't know if there are other people here who do, but you know, one watches the theater rather closely because of one's career and how audiences feel and all of that. I think there's a swinging back toward the word 
Uh, I think there's a swinging back toward the appreciation of the well-named play. I think we were, uh, and a well-crafted play, I think we were more nonverbal uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, than we are now. And maybe, you know, maybe a new appreciation is, uh, uh, or can come for, for this ritual act. So it's interesting, I just thought about when you said it, because I guess I agree, but when you talk to a young person, really young person, they, I can't hear a word, but they quote every word in a rock song. <laughs> every word. They hear it. They're, I think we're still tuned into language. Maybe not the way, exactly the way you're talking about. I mean, people still get upset about the language. They want to censor those records. They want to turn the radio. But the kids are hearing it. Uh, and maybe that's translating into, you know, uh, Sam Shepard is language, language, language. Yeah, I yeah, love right. it. Uh, David Mamet, it's another kind of language, but it's language, language, language. Uh, personally, I get drunk on it, and I, I'm, I'm never going to give it up. It is my habit, and it's certainly addictive. <laughs> that's, you know, me. I'll go down talking. James, perhaps we all will open up the discussion to the audience now. Would anybody like to ask questions? Yes. We regret that this question was inaudible on the original master tapes. We're going to go directly to the answer. I think some people would like to, some people would like to think that good actors from various media of talent can simply find in Shakespeare a platform uh, in which they will shine. I, I, I'm afraid another, another requirement for the Shakespeare actor, besides being talented and having training on some level, is a strong verbal training, uh, a knowledge of words and books, and a strong vocal training and physical training so that his instrument will respond to all these marvelous things that he may be feeling which might work on television. Uh, I, I don't think the problem is, I don't think the problem is so much uh, a variety of accent as a lack of training on the part of some actors, full training, who would like to try to do this stuff and really aren't quite ready to. There used to be a learning event about dance. Like a, a training we was not necessarily going to even for something called stage diction. And it was very limited. I think people, Americans, very limited. We were talking to boys as Americans in American drama schools. And so, some people have been that we all do this so that everyone would be a family together, speaking in a way. Wherever it's been said, that no one speaks a language that's never spoken that here. It's really a mess of a bunch of That's what we were brought up. We were brought up. We were brought up. We ours is neither English nor American, but we were all talking. And it belonged in the world of Catherine Cornell, Kahana, Blair, Dennis King, those actors. And it became very much very good. It was good. But it did recognize those. But personally, I like a, a happy medium. I mean, I, I translated from singing. I, I don't. You, you you have to place your voice in a certain way. I mean, singing. I think in speaking the same way. I I, I don't like to hear strong regionalisms. Um, but 
that doesn't have to be phony, nor does it have to be non-American. That's exactly your point. No, I think that unless you're trying to do some particular kind of You aren't saying that, Zora. I mean, I'm not. They must free themselves from their limitations, yes. right? So that they can do a variety of things. And surely, you know, I could, I don't know whether I could be as Hoosier as I was born right here or not, but I could probably do a play of it if I rehearsed. Uh, they're not going to lose their native wooden tomorrow. But in the same way that I would, I want them to dance too. I want them to be able to uh, do stage fighting. I want them often to be able to sing. I mean, you have to train your instrument to respond to the demands of the play. And that might be one of the demands. Therefore, I mean, they're not actually, I mean, it's a little bit of a simplification to say that they're actually, of course you responded to that, that they're actually being uh, themselves, you're, you're using their own body, their own voice. It's their own body, their own voice as actors, which is going to vary according to what is required of whatever role, whatever play, because that's the skill of being an actor. Your, uh, and if you have a, I suppose what your meaning is, if you have a deep Texan accent, it would be wise to have some kind of modification if you're going to play Mercutio. Well, you have to have some sort of good theatre speech, but good theatre speech doesn't mean that you throw out everything that is your natural sound. If you have an R that doesn't, keep it, keep it. If you have, uh, I'm bad, bad, all those sounds are marvellous, marvellous. Gold, cold, marvellous sounds. I'm, and I'm Australian. I'm, There's something else that happened. I just was dealing with it, too. And, uh, where actors, young actors, think they have to put on another kind of voice because it's written yeah. in other poetry. Voice, I, don't I think that's what, uh, yes. we're, that's we're, what we're talking, talking about. about. Yes. And I keep saying, where'd you get this funny voice? Yes. I mean, they're saying, uh, Jerry, I'd like to do some... And then so they start to read. read. Right, yes. And they have to really discover the yeah. difference between yeah. these two things. They are not, that's not what you're talking about. It's, no. it's, uh, it's what you're talking about, isn't it? Are and you training actors? Uh, yes, young actors actually Great. Yes. I'm sure. It's thrilling. Somebody else? James. What about college Shakespeare? Walter Kerr said a few years ago that originally Hamlet ran close to two hours. Do you think we should strive to do the next that, that very next case, or do you think in this day when it's played in the I think, I think cutting sometimes is important. What sort of criteria? Well, I, um, I mean, sometimes you've got to even write a little bit in. If something's taken, I mean, Tony Guthrie wrote a little scene in 
in All's Well That Ends Well because I was having trouble getting into my ball gown as Helda. <laughs> so he wrote a simply marvellous scene for two fellas. <laughs> Quick, little scene, little scene. It's just the last minute, zip, I had to get it. It was brilliant, but that's Tony. Um, <laughs> I think what I think I really hate is when you juxtapose and push it around. A, a, a little cut here and a little cut there is okay, but when you take it out of context, when I met uh, uh, Macbeth, uh, the last director had taken the whole sweep of the last act from the time that all the fellows arrived from England, Malcolm and also in all those groups, and he'd put them all together, all those scenes, and then you had 17 miles of Macbeth going on and 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 on which, uh, you know, Shakespeare is so extraordinary. He says, make we our march toward Burnham. And then he says, I cannot be afraid until Burnham Wood doth come to Gunsonin. What wood is that before us? It's all, it's really quick cut, 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 Shakespeare did. And it goes by like a son of a bitch. But if you put it all together, and then you put all of Macbeth together, Macbeth seems like, you know, people were saying, oh, boy, when does that fella stop talking? <laughs> unfair to Macbeth, unfair to the audiences. So I do really, truly resent, don't I, Philip? juxtaposing of uh, uh, and pushing things around and I really resent when people cut because they're taking up so much time getting a new scene set Mm. take away the scene and see how it goes I learned over years of doing when I came in theater again in the early 50s that was common uh, to transpose scenes I mean it was thought that that is what you did and you used your wonderful sense if you work with the plays uh, what you do is you get very humble before Shakespeare's craft. It is, I mean, like wanting to screw around with a great Broadway musical. Don't. I mean, you don't fool around with My Fair Lady and you don't fool around with West Side Story because it has been honed and honed and honed by people, actors working. I mean, that's how I feel. You, you know, you live with them and you feel like you're part of the company and you know how act, smart actors think and what they need, and usually there's a scene to cover a costume change. I never cut except when after working on a, a piece of text and nothing in the world will make it clear. Not behavior, not careful language, not, then I will cut because it only makes good sense. Because if the audience blanks out, then they don't hear the next good stuff. But I don't do it in, a, uh, in my armchair. I do it while we're working, when we're working. I try to make everything work. I don't believe Hamlet ever was two hours long. I don't care what he said. I mean, I don't care what Shakespeare said, our two hours traffic on the stage. I think he was just trying to, you know, say to his audience, don't, don't get nervous. He won't he be there long. Right. A four and a half hour show. Yeah, oh, right, they'll right. be taking their oranges and going. <laughs> so, Jim, I, I would like to deal with your question in a slightly other, other context. My next play is King John. Uh, by Shakespeare, and hardly a man alive you know, could tell about doing King John or seeing it. I, it's, it's a brand new play to me. Uh, I've, I've, oh, I've seen it once, but uh, it, it, the British television version goes on for three hours. Three hours of bad acting. Lack of three hours of, of indecision. Well, anyway, I've got this. I've, I've gone back to the old play that Shakespeare adapted his King John from, called The Troublesome Reign of King John, written in 1588 by God knows who. And there's a wonderful two speeches there that starts the play off a whole lot better than Shakespeare's play starts off. It's true. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> so I, so I, I used them. 
And there, there's a place where, I mean, there's a line of exposition late in the play that says uh, the king has been poisoned by a monk. And then they all go up and the king dies. But there's a great scene in the earlier play that Shakespeare chose not to use where there's the monk and there's the poison and it really plugs a hole. So I see, I've decided, uh, here, I, I'm, 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 oh, I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I decided, I, 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 I think it's a concept. I, I, I only, I'm only doing this because I was a member of the New Dramatists and I feel a right to cut this off. But, 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 but it's a very long play, so I'm reducing it. And the more I get to know it, the more I think Shakespeare must have revised it on call for, in about two weekends because they need, need to stick something in the repertoire. And a lot of it's damn good, but there's some scenes where he actually follows the speech patterns of the earlier play. The king speaks, and somebody else speaks, and somebody else, he's done the same thing, except he rewrote You think he just passed so his well. notice that this swell first speech just set the play up swell? I think maybe the guys who printed the first folio, uh, you know, who knows how these things get done. And uh, scholars, anyway, I'm doing an, an, edi- an editing job, you see, quite different from my usual course. And I feel because I'm hacking out something that's practically going to be a new play to everybody, I really don't feel I'm stepping on anybody's toes. I think I may reveal in an acceptable form an old play which otherwise might not be liked and might not even be done. Uh, but again, you know, the, the word speaks to you and you do what you have to do. That, I, I hate dogmatic statements. Uh, there's no, never anything. So I can't be dogmatic about anything. Uh, uh, except this statement. <laughs> Not that you can't fool around with Shakespeare or do what you're doing. I've, I've done some of that too. But that I trust him. I trust him more than myself. And so I look and look and I stick with something for a long, long yeah. time trying to figure out why did he do it? Why is it there? It doesn't make any sense. Why the fuck doesn't he do this? I mean, uh, Twelfth Night, which starts with the Duke and then goes to this terrible uh, uh, little scene uh, where she lands on the... He is so smart. I mean, you can't do it any other way. But you try. You think, well, this will be much more convenient because then I don't have to go back on the scene thing. And I, da-da, 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 throw it. But I trust him, trust him, trust him. And do any kind of change, as you're suggesting, after a lot, a lot of struggle. I think we have to realize that the plays in the first polio have arrived at us in different conditions. Uh, Hamlet, we've got Hamlet in an almost uncut version. We've got Macbeth in clearly a, a cut and acting, an acting version. Uh, uh, and uh, the plays are in different conditions as they arrive at the printer. Who knows what the manuscripts were like when they were arrived, or even who delivered them, or even if they were Shakespeare's handwriting. Uh, so so I, I think that kind of scholarship justifies a little more freedom than we might otherwise take, but always ask why, right? Ask why. He's not just a foolish old timey playwright. Have we not? Yes? Um, the war between nature and versus land. The one thing that I hear gets lost is uh, the cho- is a lyrical choice. Uh, the, the dangerous choice, the fashionable dangerous choice in a wooing scene to take a very overtly sexual tone and meaning to the line. And that I think that the, the choice of making a line beautiful, making a speech beautiful, um, Using the words act, the action of the use of the word is to create something beautiful to move something in another character. I feel that gets lost a lot. Oh, you're absolutely right. 
just in mind, you mentioned that you see that also. No, you're absolutely right. When I use the word dangerous as opposed to applying it to actors, I like actors who are dangerous. They can be lyrical, but they are, for an audience, dangerous. That's terribly important in the theatre, I think. But it doesn't mean that a danger... I mean, Ralph Richardson I found extraordinarily dangerous and incredibly lyrical. So one doesn't cancel out the other, and I wouldn't want it to cancel out the other if I gave any impression of that. Certainly not. Certainly not. It's something that I see. Yes, I'm sure you're bruised. Sure. I understand. I'm bruised. <laughs> it's true. It's so joyous, that sensibility of wooing the interplay of masculine and feminine sensibilities which he understands more than anybody else in the entire world. And it's so, so often just trampled upon. You're absolutely right. I, I, of course, oh well, no, I shouldn't say what I should be saying. <laughs> but I was going to say, I think our sense of lyricism probably alters with periods of time. Uh, the 19th century sense of lyricism is very different from the 20th century sense of lyricism. But I, so I think it's just using the word lyricism. Right? You're, you're just talking about good acting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that old thing. Oh, no, no. Well, I mean the quality of the actor himself, actually. Someone who is... And also the, the spontaneous, the, the fact that it hasn't been created before, apparently, and it's only being created now, that's pretty dangerous. Suspense, so, surprise. Yes. yes. Depending on the actor, I think. Depending on the actor, I think. He said, I'm not going to be thought worse than other actors. I'm not going to compete. He was relinquishing. David Warner did the same thing. He didn't compete. What about soliloquies? How do you handle soliloquies? Some seem to work in direct address. Some seem forced in direct address. Some seem like an inner monologue. 
And it varies from production to production and actor to actor. Some actors can, don't you find? Some actors can do this a little bit in direct address and make it a, a wonderful and functional dialogue between himself and the audience while he's working That's out the best. Stuff. I like That's that the best. best. But there are some actors who don't seem to be able to do that. I would like, in my ideal three-sided <laughs> theater, I'm all coming with you. I'm coming with you on that one. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, uh, to, to, to be or not to be, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. That's the question. You've got it. Whether it's noble in the mind to suffer, don't you know, when these things and hours of outrageous fortune, he's ahead of me or take arms against the sea of troubles. You do it this way, or by opposing and them, and and so so that, that everything is a you get it from the audience. You don't get it in your head. It'd be wonderful. So, well, it's quite so much. Well, I mean, <laughs> it could sound like a lecture, couldn't it? Pardon? Yes, it could sound like a lecture if you're engaging. And after all, what Hamlet is doing is really struggling to try and make some decision with, with himself. Isn't that one of the problems with the soliloquies altogether? Not to sound like you know it all. Uh, sometimes they come out and tell me what they think. But they don't know what they think until they open their mouths, usually. And they're usually working it out, aren't they? So, uh, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. I have to avoid the lecture. Shall we end now? Mm. Yes. Right. Well, uh... oh, I have Everybody liked you so much that they didn't let me say thank you very much on behalf of everyone. So shall we do it again? Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theater Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.